welcome to episode 116 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we're proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? Not much, man. Uh, we were out tonight, and on the way home, we saw chimney fire. So that was exciting. Yeah, so my sister texted me about this. Uh, yeah. Tell us the details, like what went down. Yeah, we were driving back. We were out with uh, mom and dad doing some stuff in town, and we were driving back, and we saw a chimney that was on fire. And so we pulled up, and dad like ran up to the door and knocked on it. And the crazy thing, so this is the crazy thing, is um, the chimney was like really on fire. It wasn't just like a few sparks. It was like flames coming out of the chimney, which is usually by the time that happens, it's not it's not good, right? Right. Yeah, and so the guy kind of like meandered out of his house and like looked up at it and then like started walking back in his house and then he came back out and it was like, huh. So it, like he didn't seem that freaked out about it. But then when we drove back through there on our way home from mom and dad's house, um, there was like fire trucks everywhere. So they obviously wow. sent out all the, I mean like the entire Enfield fire department, which is like one truck was there. <laughs> So there was actually two trucks, so they must have called the neighboring town too. Yeah, they got reinforcements. It was a chimney fire. Yeah, it was. We got to watch out for those chimney fires. But it was pretty serious though. Like we were sitting in the parking, we were sitting in the driveway waiting for dad to run in. And there was actually a part of me that was like, we should not be this close to what's going on because it was pretty serious. So, and then we just drove away because the guy didn't seem that (laughs) concerned about it. So... Well, you guys are heroes. Yeah, I don't know about that, but we did we did notify him, and when he walked out, it was like he didn't seem like he had any idea it was happening. So, we probably saved the guy's house. To be honest, like he, I mean, we probably saved him fifteen minutes before he would have smelled the smoke in the house, and, and probably at that point it would have been too late to do anything without any major damage. So, that's what I'm saying, heroes. Yeah, yeah, I making it happen, hero. saving lives. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I did not anticipate you would bust out in that song when we started this. Well, you know, whatever. I could have sung like, (laughs) isn't there like a Nickelback song about Hero? We would lose all of our listeners, though, if I tried to sing Nickelback. Oh, my goodness. I almost just turned off the mic. I know. I know. So speaking speaking of that, but can we just talk about this real quick? I read an article, I think it was like in the Wall Street Journal recently, about how everybody says they hate Nickelback, and yet... Nickelback just like laughs all the way to the bank because they still like tour all over the world and sell every show and people come to see them. That's true, but occasionally at their concerts, people throw glass bottles at the stage and hit them in the face. So (laughs) that's almost like any rock show. I mean, I I might, I might do that for enough money too. As long as I knew I wasn't going to be like permanently (laughs) damaged, I might let someone throw a glass bottle at my face. But so what you're saying is there's like an alternate, form of economic value here and that is people are paying for the option to be able to get close enough to throw items at them i would yeah i mean that's that's <laughs> probably why the front row tickets cost more because they're like i hate nickelback so much that i'm gonna i'm gonna go to the concert just so i can throw something at them actually here's a funny story i was at a toby Mac concert one time at like a big music festival and, and you threw a glass out- bottle at him no it was outdoors and somebody threw like a big beach ball up in the air and a gust of wind took it. And it was like a huge beach ball. And it, one of his, I don't remember, he had like this other woman singer that was part of his little rap crew or whatever. And the ball came and it hit her and like knocked her all the way off of her feet onto her back. Like it hit her really hard. It's a serious beach ball to take somebody I out. I know. I mean, it was one of those like monsterish beach balls, but he got thrown up in the air and the wind just grabbed it. And it was, it was just flying it was huge man you know those toby mac shows that just get crazy yeah they get crunk <laughs> well i like wow that's also another <laughs> word <laughs> did not see coming that that I, beach I, ball I, hit the cray button right in the face yeah it did yeah it did um i like though this idea now i'm going to keep this in my mind that when i see the prices for nickelback concert tickets and they're within like i would say like the distance of the average person's throwing range that there's like a glass premium that they charge because they know that they're going to throw a glass at them. So they just yeah. want to be compensated. Yeah. The, you know, this is this is like a Planet Money episode waiting to happen or like an <laughs> indicator episode to like figure out the actual like 
value of throwing a glass bottle at Nickelback. Now, me, we are not advocating violence towards no, Nickelback no, no, no. or anyone else, but it would just be interesting to see how much the people who pay money to throw glass bottles at them are willing to pay. Somebody do that reporting. Yeah. Yeah. Can I can I just pay you a compliment that I, you are like a podcast renaissance man? Yeah, I actually weeded out a lot of podcasts recently because I just don't have as much time in the car as I used to. My last job, I actually had like tons of time during the day when I was like cranking away, scheduling patients to listen to podcasts. But I'm not I'm not in that role anymore, so I don't listen to as much. But yeah, I used to listen to the indicator every morning and I, I just don't have it on my list anymore. Wow, good on you. Wait, so what does somebody do or what podcast is like your podcast of choice when you're scheduling transplants? Uh, I listened to everything when I did that. I mean, I just listened to everything. I have like a really complex algorithm that my podcast app uses to like figure out what to play first. Of course. Why not? Yeah. So it's like it plays. (laughs) There's several shows that it plays first and then it plays uh, then it plays a sermon and then it plays like a non-Christian episode and then it plays a Christian episode and then it plays like a lecture from like a seminary course. And I've got that all. Yeah. Wow. Well, That's pretty crazy. Really, the only podcast that matters is this one. It's so true. we should start before, doing this podcast. I was going to say, exactly. It's already gone off the rails again. But yeah. before we get into what we're talking about, I believe you had a little recommendation of sorts. I do. So our good friend over at rootedapparels.com let me know that he has recently changed the name of his business. And with that business name change comes a new website. So he has launched confessionalwear.com, which has uh, all the same great Christian uh, merchandise and paraphernalia. Uh, it's got all the Reformed Brotherhood gear. But he's kind of separated out some of the other um, other themes that he has. Like he's got a veganism theme that he's got going. He's separated that out into a separate brand. So if you go to confessionalwear.com, you get all of like the Christian gear that he has uh, on the site. So like you said, there's a lot of pretty sweet reformed brotherhood stuff on that site. Yeah. What is like your favorite thing on there? I want to so, ask. Uh, my wife, your sister, uh, finally put on her reformed brotherhood t-shirt, which oh, is yeah. a woman's t-shirt. Um, so we asked him because we know that we have several uh, women listeners. There's probably like five or six total, but um, several we have several women listeners. Um, we know that theology gals will occasionally recommend our episode. So there is actually a uh, woman's fitted uh, Reformed Brotherhood t-shirt that's available on there. And then, you know, there's hoodies, there's the, the mug that Jesse and I both love so much. Um, there's a tumbler. So there's just a lot of really good products. Yeah, the hoodie is crazy comfortable too, it isn't is. it? It's really soft. Yeah, if you're looking for like a super soft sweatshirt, it's it's on point. And I love to wear it because then my wife makes fun of me for having something that I'm wearing that also has my face on it. <laughs> I know. My wife is like, "It's time to stop. It's time. It's time to stop." And I'm like, "I'm not buying this stuff." He just sends the samples. She's like, "You've got enough." Like right now, um, she's wearing a Reformed Brotherhood T-shirt. I've got a Reformed Brotherhood mouse pad, which is not available on the website. Uh, there's a Reformed Brotherhood mug downstairs. I've got two Reformed Brotherhood t-shirts and a Reformed Brotherhood hoodie. So, And she has that t-shirt, which I already mentioned. So there's there's a lot of really cool stuff out there. So confessionalware.com. Uh, you can also go to our website. We mentioned this. There's a link in the menu that says join the Brotherhood. And inside of there, uh, there's a link where you can buy a t-shirt. Um, I'll have to get that website updated. But for now, it's going to redirect. Excellent. So what are we talking about tonight? So I thought we would kick uh, the episode off by talking about an email that we received. So um, there we got an email uh, from one of our listeners who was sort of concerned about a quote from Herman Bovink that he had found on a website called the Trinity Foundation. Um, so let me get the Trinity Foundation up. Um, I'm sure that this quote appears in more than one place because this is kind of one of those quotes that the the haters love to bash on. Um, but this is in an article on trinityfoundation.org titled The Marks of Neoliberalism. Uh, it was written by Paul Elliott. Um, I don't see a date on when this was released, but I suspect it's probably a little bit older because it's using an older translation of Bovink. Um, so let me find the quote in the article that he. I mean, is you know that article about. is is going to be super awesome, just given that title. That's yeah. the kind of thing that just draws you right in. Yeah, and I'm sure that it's completely fair since it's talking about Bob Inc. as a bastion of neoliberalism. Exactly. Um, 
So here, here's the quote that um, that gave our listener a little bit of consternation. Um, let's see. Here it is. Um, it says, accordingly, adequate knowledge of God does not exist. There's no name that makes known to us his being. The words Father, God, Lord are not real names, but appellations derived from his good deeds and functions. Um, and then there was a couple other spots here that um, he pointed out. Uh, this one says, Christian theology made the idea of God's incomprehensibility and unknowability its point of departure. And then there's an ellipsis, which will become important in a few minutes. Um, God's revelation in creation and redemption fails to reveal him adequately. So um, more or less what, what the article here is presenting is a critique of the idea that God is unknowable. And something that's important to point out, because our our um, our listener who emailed us said that they sometimes go to this website um, as sort of like a test of orthodoxy. So they'll they'll come to this website, they'll find out what this website has to say about it. And the Trinity Foundation is um, basically a, it's like a like a continuation of the work of Gordon Clark, who was um, sort of involved in the OPC around the same time uh, as Van Til and others, and um, Part of the problem is that Gordon Clark is what you would call a rationalist. So he believed um, and he argued and articulated more or less that um, God is um, that God. We can speak of God um, univocally. And what that means is that when we say something about God in human language. um, So let's say we say that God is good. Um, and then I say that Jesse is good. And, and although we're talking about a variation in um, degrees, um, we're still talking about the same thing when we say good. Um, so Jesse's goodness is a lesser degree of God's goodness, but it exists all in the same continuum. And what we've talked about in the past is that how that just doesn't work. And so um, we're going to use this as a little bit of a jumping off point. But I wanted to read um, in an updated translation the actual quote um, from Bavink's Dogmatic. So um, I'm reading out of the um, Baker edition, which was translated by John Bolt. It's kind of the the massive four-part um, translation. It's in volume two. It's on page 36. And the language is a little bit different. Um, like I said, it's an updated translation. But it says, uh, this theory of incomprehensibility of God and of the unknowability of his essence also became the starting point and fundamental idea of Christian theology. Neither in creation nor in rede- recreation... Does God reveal himself exhaustively? He cannot fully impart himself to creatures. For that to be possible, they themselves would have to be divine. There is therefore no exhaustive knowledge of God. There is no name that makes his essence known to us. There is no concept that fully encompasses him. There is no description that fully defines him. That which lies behind revelation is completely unknown, unknowable. We cannot approach it either by our thoughts, our imaginations, or our language. The letter of Barnabas already poses the question, if the Son of God had not become incarnate, then how could human beings have beheld him and lived? So the the quote goes on. Um, there's there's probably like five or six more lines that hide in that ellipsis. So what, what this article shrunk down to uh, probably about 15 words is actually almost a whole page of Bobbing's Dogmatics. So I can understand at first blush why this quote, um, even if you extrapolate it with everything else, why this quote seems concerning. Because it, it's saying that even, even what God reveals himself in the Bible is not adequate. And what that means is it's not comprehensive. It doesn't completely reveal God. And what I wanted to clue in on or key in on is this quote that Bavink pulls out from the epistle of Barnabas, um, which was a, on a pseudepigraphal uh, letter from the early church. And it says, if the son of God had not become incarnate, then how could human beings have beheld him and lived? So the point that Bavink is pulling out is that the only way that we know Christ or the only way we know God is in the face of Jesus Christ. The only way that we can see God or understand God is because God accommodates himself to our language, to our concepts, to our thinking. And so a, a way to think about this is, is just as straightforward as this. If it's true that human language is finite, then how could it possibly fully describe the infinite? 
And this is this is where um, I think Gordon Clark's theology can be dangerous, and where I think where I wanted to lead into our conversation tonight is that Gordon Clark's theology, which is represented in this article, um, which as I said isn't written by Clark but was written by someone named Paul Elliott, this theology that God's essence is knowable. Um, through revelation that God has revealed himself to a way where his, the S the divine essence itself is no know of knowable is that it circumvents and it, it short circuits the idea that Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. It makes Christ as the supreme revelation of God unnecessary, which we know from scripture that just isn't the case. So where I think we should go tonight is we should have a conversation, not just about this element of, of union with Christ, but about union with Christ and how even, even God's revelation of himself has to take place in the context of union with Christ. Right on. I love that. So what do you think about that, Jesse? (laughs) About union with Christ or about how there was Bobbing was basically cherry picked there with a strange quotation that missed a whole lot of the inner part. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that's, what's unfortunate about that particular, in this particular instance, that's, what's really unfortunate there because there's a lot that's, you know, left unsaid that was like the, the hallmark of what he was really saying, like all the meat is right there. And yep. it was just taken out of context and bookended with that kind of beginning in the end. Yeah. It was like somebody bought like a really nice juicy hamburger and took it home and like took the bread off and scraped all the fixings off and then was like, look at how terrible this hamburger is. But it's because it took you took out all of like the good stuff in the middle and all right. you were left was like the bread on the ends, which bread is great, but like hamburger bun bread is not great by itself. It serves a purpose of right. bringing the hamburger into your mouth. And that's kind of what happened here. I don't know. I don't want to impute motives to this. I don't know that this was intentional. I have never read anything by this guy before, so I don't have any track record of his. But it's really clear that like he, if you read the whole article, he latched on to this idea of incomprehensibility. And right. one of the things that I found about Gordon Clark and, and my interactions with most of his um, kind of like acolytes, his followers, is that they're just jerks most of the time. Like they're rude, they're arrogant, um, they kind of treat you like you're stupid. Um, and and what happens is um, they latch on to something and then they get sarcastic about it. And then in this case, his sarcasm gave way to kind of this truncated quote and, and this whole section in the middle that just isn't, it just misses the whole point of it. This is a, just a good reminder, no matter what kind of argumentation you're making or you're trying to, di- you're trying to understand that ellipses are dangerous when you find yeah. them kind of in the middle there, because there's, it, you have no good sense of how much is being just passed over. So yeah. it, that's good because it's easy to use those and be misunderstood and it's easy to use them and make somebody else's argument totally misunderstood. So yeah. it's just a good lesson in, in reading and going back to first sources at least. Yeah. So I'm glad that you brought that up and was able to kind of flesh it out, no pun intended, because I agree, of course, with everything that you said. And I think that this is something that Christians need to take stock of with their, what, how they, how we understand what the union of Christ is. And I think we were kind of talking beforehand and uh, I think we both see this really as the centerpiece of all of salvation. But I was thinking it's not as if we go to the five solas in the reformed tradition and then somehow those provide this stable platform, which we have union with Christ. Right. Basically, all those five solos are emerge from union with Christ. And yeah. I find that if you think if you just kind of dip into modern evangelicalism or kind of lukewarm evangelicalism and, and you ask somebody, what is, are, are, is there union with Christ? I, I think you're going to be hard pressed to get like a no answer. There's going to be a yes of some sort. If you ask, well, what does that union of Christ mean? What is it by definition? How would you describe it? And then how does that impact our life day to day? I think you would get probably nine times out of 10, some answer like, well, union with Christ is like a relationship with Jesus. Like he knows me yeah. and I know him. And uh, it's certainly not less than that, I guess, but it's so much more. I mean, that almost makes it pale in comparison to what it really is. So that's why I'm eager to kind of talk about it a little bit, because at the very outset, I would say, Paul, all of his theology is centered on union with Christ. I mean, he, yeah. He's using this language all throughout every epistle. And he basically, it starts with him answering this question. You know, this is from Romans. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he comes with that familiar response that we've heard so many times. Heaven forbid. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, 
that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so even we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And then he goes on like a little bit later uh, to talk about our, the, our old identity and it being literally buried. And the believer, of course, is raised again. And I, I like this is verse seven from Romans chapter six. I just like the Phillips translation, the paraphrase, because it's just really stark here. It reads, let us never forget that our old selves died with him on the cross, that the tyranny of sin over us might be broken for a dead man can safely be said to be free from the power of sin. So just starting there, like those verses are, are way, way beyond just the, I have a relationship with Jesus, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and you know, we don't, we're not going to get into all the technical details tonight, but th- there are lots of different elements to union. Um, you know, there's a forensic element that, that we become legally comprehended in Christ. Um, right. There's a covenantal element that we become um, members of his people. We become vassals or servants of Christ um, in the covenant of grace and in the covenant, you know, and Christ is the servant in the covenant of works. Um, there's a mystical union um, where where we actually become sort of uh, united metaphysically with Christ, that there's a there's a, a spiritual union that Christ's spirit dwells in us. And because of that, we're united with Christ. So there's different elements of union with Christ that um, theologians distinguish. But at the end of the day, what union with Christ means is um, it is relational, but it's so much deeper than that, right? We, we are in Christ and Christ is in us in a way that is somehow analogous to the intra-Trinitarian relationships in the Godhead, right? right in uh, John 17, um, round verse 20, um, Christ talks about how he prays to the Father, and he says, Father, I would be, I would, that, that as I am in you and you are in me, right, perichoresis, that we would be in each other because Christ is in us. So there's a special kind of union that I share with Jesse or with my wife or with my father-in-law or with the unnamed unknown Christian in Africa or Asia or, or somewhere else in the world. There's a special kind of mystical union that comes about because of that. And that's, that's where like the body metaphor comes in and is so strong is that because we're united with the head, we're also united with the rest of the body in a, in a real concrete metaphysical way that kind of defies explanation in a lot of ways. Right. Perichoresis. And all those things for me have in common, whether it's this legal sense or the covenantal, this idea of it is a complete transformation of identity that is real. And it's rooted not just in a connection, but like you said, in in the perichoresis. So even just like in a justified sense, what Paul is talking about there, my brain always goes to this strange account that I read about, I think once again in the Wall Street Journal, which is apparently where I get my news both about... (laughs) Uh, Nickelback and other contemporary events. Um, But this idea of being bought with the blood of Christ, being covered in that blood, that that is is the thing in a sense, this wonderful is more than a metaphor, but of course this type and understanding of what it means to be transformed in Christ, to be completely different, to be now beloved by God in the real sense that you are, you are seen for having accomplished everything that Jesus, our elder brother, accomplished both in his perfect living and his perfect sacrifice. But I think of this account every time when I come to this passage. On November 26, 2008, there were a gang of terrorists stormed the historic Taj Mahal Palace Hotel in Mumbai, India. And they strode through the dining room and they killed 200 people. And one of the guests who had been at the hotel for dinner that night was interviewed by the media afterwards. And he described how he and his friends they were eating dinner when they heard the gunshots and somebody just grabbed him and pulled him under the table. And the terrorists came in striding through the restaurant, just shooting at will until they thought they had killed everybody. But this guy found himself miraculously alive. He was the only survivor to my knowledge. And when the interviewer asked him how it was that everyone at his table in the room was dead, but he was still alive, his answer was, crazy sobering, at least for me. And and this is just what came out of his mouth. He said, I suppose it's because I was covered in someone else's blood and they took me for dead. Yeah. And I I always think about this because it's that real. I mean, what we deserved, where, where we should be is in some kind of eternal punishment separated from God forever. And the fact that in Jesus Christ, we have something more than just the, Hey, I know this guy but there's been like complete redemption applied. There's therefore no condemnation in Jesus Christ. So this idea that union in Christ is 
completely transforming and totally undoes our identity. And in fact, in some ways, what Jesus came to accomplish in us by granting us union with him by the power of the spirit was a complete killing of ourselves. It wasn't to like come and empower us or yeah. make us better or, or to turn bad people from good, but to really kill the old self and then to raise it up again in yeah. life. And that's so much richer than what we usually end up talking about. And I, I really can, in some ways, when I think about it, I really identify with this man because that's, that's why I think about my sin is I suppose I was covered in Christ's blood yeah. and I was taken for dead instead and then raised to be alive with him. Yeah. And we have to be careful with this, um, with this line of speaking because you can take any sort of metaphor too far, but it's as if, um, it's as if God looks upon us and, and as you're saying here and sees Christ's blood covering us and, and essentially looks and says the price has already been paid for this person's sin. Right. right? It's not like he looks at us and, and somehow Christ tricks him into thinking that we're dead. And that, that's where I think the analogy could go awry, but it, it is, he looks at us and says, this sin has been atoned for this sin has been paid for. Um, you know, and this goes to the, the, the lambs in the Passover, right? There was a concrete, um, there was a concrete exchange going on uh, between uh, the lambs and a certain number of firstborn, a certain sized family. And it was because the lambs were sort of united to that family in a sense, kind of prefiguring this is that a particular lamb was serving as a sacrifice substitute for a particular number of people. And so that, you know, other, other traditions, Lutheranism, Roman Catholicism, they all talk about being united to Christ because that's biblical language. But this concept of union with Christ, the way that we think about it as reform folks really is a unique, uh, unique reformed conception because union with Christ, um, it starts in eternity past for us, right? So this is one of the things that always kind of bugged me about um, covenant theology is is how how do we think about the eternal uh, the eternal situation for God's elect and how does that not result in eternal justification? And and um, Gerhardus Voss is so helpful on this, and he talks about how in eternity past in the covenant of redemption in God's God's decree to save a certain number of people and certain specific people, right? We're not talking about just like, well, I'm going to save 60% of the human race and I'm just going to make sure that comes about, but I'm not sure which ones. Specific individual people in eternity past are comprehended and predestined in Christ. So even in eternity past, our union with Christ is initiated in the covenant of redemption. Um, So God chooses who he will save and then he unites them um, ideologically with Christ in his own um, his own comprehension of those people. So this gets into ordo salutis things. It gets into the the logical ordering of God's decree. But before we go much further, I want to read um, something out of the larger catechism just to sort of give us a baseline and sort of a, a working definition because I think that's important. Is um, it's funny because you know just glossing through this, I was like, oh, the Westminster Larger Catechism doesn't have a definition or a question. Uh, but then I come to question sixty nine. It says, "What is the communion in grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ?" Answer is the communion in grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is their partaking of the virtue of His mediation in their justification, adoption, sanctification, and whatever else in this life manifest their union with him. So it's important for us to remember, right? There's all this debate and discussion and arguing about like, well, what comes first in the Ordo Salutis is in the Lutheran conception, justification is the first, kind of the first part of the Ordo Salutis, right? So there are Lutherans and most Lutherans would hold that um, faith is flows from regeneration, right? Regeneration's first. That's where faith comes in. And then faith brings about justification. And now that we're legally justified, Christ can embrace us and we can embrace him back. And that's where they place union with Christ. Um, the problem with that is that it waits for us to be legally just before Christ embraces us. So right. so there has been some people, um, there was a kind of a heated exchange between Lane Tipton and Mike Horton um, a few years back on, on a reform forum. Um, there was three episodes. We'll put the, um, we'll put the links in the show notes. 
But um, Lane Tipton's basic argument was that there's a sort of Pelagian flavor to that Ordo Salutis that puts justification before um, union because it, it requires some sort of legal change. It requires some sort of status change before Christ can embrace us. Where the Reformed Ordo Salutis flips that around and says, no, uh, all of God's actions towards us are a result of his grace, which is another way to say, because we affirm that God is gracious only to the elect, um, that it's actually a result of God's love. So justification is a result of God's love, not the thing that makes God's love possible, right? So God's love precedes uh, precedes justification and sanctification, adoption, all of these things. And so the reformed Ordo Salutis takes union with Christ and puts it at the front end. And then justification, sanctification, adoption, they all flow out of, um, out of union with Christ as sort of parallel benefits, right? In, in the row, uh, the, the Lutheran Ordo Salutis justification flows out of out of uh, faith, but sanctification and adoption flow out of justification. So justification is the grounds for all of these other benefits, not union with Christ. Um, so I just think it's important for us to kind of get that get that level set to start with before we get to any of the other parts of the conversation. I was actually glad you brought that up because one of the things that I've often thought about is that I think the Arminian error, if I can just be totally blunt in this area, is because there is a lack of robust understanding of union with Christ. I think that's actually like an, an error that flows out of that understanding. Right. Because justification is not the new birth, right? So it's important to realize that Christ does not come to improve the old self, like I said. He's not coming to redirect. He's coming to kill it in order to raise up a newness of life. Right. So he's not a friend of the old self. He is its mortal enemy, and he's been replacing it with a new self. So we're not justified by conversion, but conversion or the new birth is the gift of God given to those who are spiritually dead and unable to choose Christ. So in the new birth, God is granting faith necessary to respond positively. And it's through this faith, not of course, conversion itself, that one is accepted by God. And that's like a big difference from, from, I think, again, modern kind of evangelical Arminian thinking, because all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are found in Christ. So that means even the gifts, the Holy Spirit are through and for the ministry of Christ, who is our mediator. So no one's baptized in the Holy Spirit, but baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. So like you were saying, if I'm understanding you correctly, regeneration or the new birth is the beginning of that union. And God brings this connection baptism even before there's any sign of life. That's why Paul says, while you were dead, he made you alive. So the first gift of this union is faith. And that's the sole instrument through which we live and remain on the vine united with Christ. Right. So through union with Christ, we receive his righteousness imputed. That's the justification as well as his righteousness imparted, which would be sanctification. So conversion to Christ is one aspect of a prior work of God's grace in uniting us to his son. And I think because that is not clear, at least in the mind of the Arminian, we do end up in some kind of place where there's some participation on my part. And that yeah. union somehow comes later on, but it doesn't seem logical that it should do so. Right. Yeah. And, you know, Arminianism, um, and there are a few Arminians that listen to our show, so I may ruffle some feathers um, if they so choose for themselves to be ruffled on their own accord. Um, but Arminianism, it really is um, kind of a kissing cousin to Pelagianism in some of this. And, and it's not um, – I'm not trying to say that they believe that they merit their own salvation or that they um, somehow obtain salvation through works or anything like that. Right, of course but, not. But the Pelagian error is deeper than um, deeper than just this idea of works righteousness. It's deeper even than just this idea that, um, that the human nature is not totally uh, corrupted by the fall. The Pelagian error really is this idea – that somehow man has to contribute his own effort, has to contribute his own thing. But even even before that, it's the idea that God comprehends um, people as elect as a response to their choice of Christ. So right. so it flips, and that that's where I'm saying like the Reformed tradition um, and Lutheranism. Lutheranism can be really hard to pin down, but a lot of Lutherans that you talk to will hold this same kind of. A view of predestination because they have to because without a robust doctrine of unconditioned election you can't say 
that God is not responding because if his election is conditioned in any sense on what we do on, on our foreseen faith or our foreseen merits or our foreseen lack of resistance to his grace and Lutheranism, if, if election is conditioned in any sense on something that the, the human sinner contributes, then what you're doing is you're saying that God does not freely choose, but he's constrained by the will of the creature. And so this Pelagian error goes back into eternity past and changes the doctrine of God such that God is no longer the source and fountain of all things, but instead is a reactive part of the the process, which in a sense kind of brings him down to a creaturely level. It puts him in the same realm as, as we are in that we, we have to react to stimulus. We have to contribute our effort. We have to interact with things, but in the reformed understanding of this, Election is is a free decree of God, and so he elects those whom he chooses, and then as an act of his own free will, he considers those people as united to Christ. So union with Christ is, is necessary as a free act of God in order to avoid this Pelagianizing tendency exactly. that we find in Lutheranism, in Arminianism, certainly in Roman Catholicism, um, even in some quarters of Reformed theology, do we see this tendency when when there's this tendency to want to elevate justification as the first, not just the first benefit of union with Christ, but actually that which makes the union with Christ um, possible. Possible. Um, and, and that's not a super common view. And, and I, I want to be really careful because this was the source of this conflict was that um, Tipton... I've heard was intentionally inflammatory in his remarks. And that's certainly not what I'm trying to do, but we have to be really careful that if we make justification, the grounds of union instead of the other way around, what we've done is we've now, cause justification comes through faith alone, right? So now we, we have, we have sort of put faith on the front end of union with Christ instead of as kind of a co cohesive thing, right? We, we do enter union with Christ as a result of faith, but it's not necessarily faith that causes union with Christ, right? Union with Christ is something that God does to us and we receive it by faith the same way we receive justification. So we just have to be really careful not to get those things in the wrong order um, and to give justification a position in, in the order of salvation, the economy of redemption that it doesn't really have. And I was calling that stuff out not to put anybody on blast, but merely to say it's possible that that kind of thinking could be inadvertently impounded in how we understand salvation. And I think we have a natural tendency to make it that way. When we start to understand what justification is, we think, well, this surely is the first domino to fall. But in fact, it's much later on, so to speak, in the sequence of falling dominoes because of what you said about faith. I mean, faith is the way, the instrument, like we were saying before, by which we have an interest in and a title to Christ. And that must come through union with Christ, which he himself brings us into by himself for his own glory. So it's that, and that's why I say I think when we begin to understand what it means to be united with Christ, as Paul is using it both in an instrumental way and in a location, that it gives us a greater appreciation for the work that God has done in salvation, and that not of ourselves. Um, what? Let me. You want to play a little game, real quick? Let's do I'm it. Put you on the spot. All right. So I want to let me read. I have a, two quotations here. But these are, I would say, like evangelical quotations that demonstrate, I think, a misunderstanding of the union with Christ. And I think that it fits perfectly into what we've just been talking about. So I'll just read a quote. And then how about we talk about what is probably wrong with everything that's just been said? And then if you want to, you can guess who said them, but you probably wouldn't. But I'll tell you at the end. So here's the first quote. The Holy Spirit will fill us with his power the moment we are fully yielded. God would be breaking his own spiritual laws if he forced man to do his bidding. Okay, go. Well, um, it's very clearly an Arminian conception of some sort. Um, True. But my main, my main issue with that is um, this misguided understanding that God's sovereignty and our agency somehow exists in a relationship where um, we have to sort of like balance the two, right? right. This idea that God, um, God has to somehow like forfeit his own sovereignty in order to um, allow us to have agency um, just doesn't really line up with the biblical reformed understanding of providence. 
because God is upholding the universe by the power of his word. So, of course, right. anything that happens happens according to his will. And our freedom is not constrained by his sovereignty, but is, in fact, established by his sovereignty. Um, so I, I would say that that's probably part of part of my major concern. The other thing is there seems to be a reversal in the Ordo Salutis, which actually makes me think that this might be John MacArthur. That said this? No, but oh, no. That idea oh, that, man. that the Holy Spirit will bless us once we've yielded ourselves to him, um, that's very characteristic of the Lordship teaching during the height of the controversy. Right. So right. Uh, you're going to like blow me away. It's going to be Zane Hodges or something like that. <laughs> no, it's it's, not, it's nothing like that. But definitely cut to John MacArthur being like, what? Yeah. Hey, you know what? He wrote it. Okay. <laughs> Right. But this proves a good point, And that is that middle part there sounds like so ubiquitous and commonly evangelical, doesn't right. it? Oh, this yeah, idea of like, sure. when we yield ourselves, when we give up, then we get some kind of real union and we get the Holy Spirit to fill us. Yeah. Except for that last part, like the forced man to do his bidding. That's the part where probably some people would, would bristle at that because it sounds really unwieldy and, and not very biblical right. at all. But the middle part there. I don't know. I mean, you, you, I hear talk like that all the time, but so this was actually Bill Bright. Who's the founder of campus crusade for Christ. So one more, listen to this. Christians are as guilty for not being filled with the Holy spirit as sinners are for not repenting. They are even more so for as they have more light, they are so much more guilty. Well, um, there are no Christians who are not filled with the Holy Spirit, so that's probably right number one. Um, by definition, a, a Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit, or they're not a Christian. Um, that would be that would be like saying um, people who are uh, who don't live with their wives. Well, I suppose there are some people who don't live with their wives. It would be like someone saying like people who are not legally married are just as guilty of uh, something as uh, people who don't get married at all. Like it, it's just a contradiction in terms right right if you're married you're married and that's like a, a state of reality and the presence of the holy spirit in the life of a, of a believer is a it's just a definitional issue um yeah i mean that's just a uh, on one sense there's a kernel of truth to it though right because it's not and the same with that previous quote is that sometimes reformed Christians get a little overzealous with trying to preserve and this is the same error but in the other direction is right they, they get so zealous trying to preserve um, God's sovereignty that they actually unbiblically eliminate our role in, in what happens. So, like, God doesn't believe for us, right? God doesn't have faith for us. He creates faith in us, and then we have faith. And in the same sense, like, yeah, if other than the definitional issue that there is no Christian without the Holy Spirit, um, the absence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person is are doing right we're the ones that resist the holy spirit and we genuinely resist the holy spirit the same way that a person who doesn't repent is guilty of not repenting they're just as much to blame as anything else that they do freely um, even though it's the lord who grants repentance and like i said that's the opposite it's the same error in the opposite direction to now say um you know if the other error was um god can't be sovereign because i'm free it's the same mistake to say I can't be free because God's sovereign when the biblical answer is God is sovereign and I'm free and my freedom is established by God who establishes all things. Exactly. Yeah. So who exactly. said that one? That's right. Any guesses since I'm I'm tasking you with like trying to discern among the entire history of the world. <laughs> uh, read it again for me. Christians are as guilty for not being filled with the Holy Spirit as sinners are for not repenting. They're even more so, for as they have more light, they are so much more the guilty. So it's obviously someone who is at least tangentially related to the charismatic movement or the Pentecostal yes, yes. movement. Someone in the Assemblies of God denomination, I would assume. Um, maybe. Maybe. Is it Leighton Flowers? No, that was a good guess, though. That was a good guess. It was Charles Finney. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, so it, it's not surprising, but this is why I, I think that union with Christ is like the center of a wheel that keeps all the other spokes in line because it touches on conversion. It touches on understanding the Holy Spirit. It touches on all th things we, like we've talked about this year. It touches on uh, the priesthood of believers. It touches on the the ethic and the vocation of work. So like we just spoke about this, but right. you know, human-centered religion has always created like two paths of life. There's one for like the spiritually gifted, another for those who settle for heaven, but not like the abundant life. 
And we've talked about that in terms of Roman Catholicism, like the, the priesthood versus religious regulars or venial versus mortal sins. We've talked about it in evangelicalism with the higher life versus carnal Christianity. And so you see like these particular gentlemen here just have an understanding that I think is so wrong that it pushes us in the wrong direction. And, and thankfully, I think the response of like the Reformation is that there's only one life that can please God, and that is Christ. Right. And because his life is accepted and we are in him hidden, as it were, we are pleasing to God and we're filled with the Spirit because every believer, like you said, possesses everything of Christ. So you, may, you might, we might say like, for those who would push back and, and talk about election, you know, what, what kind of father shares himself and his possessions with only a few favorites and withholds right. his best from others? And, you know, maybe some would say it's not a matter of the generosity of the father, but of the children's willingness to receive. We hear that a lot. Yeah. But while that might be logically coherent, it reveals a fundamentally different theological perspective because union with Christ is not the result of human decision, striving, seeking, yielding, or surrendering, but it's of Christ doing those things. Right. And then it being applied into our life. And that is like a day and night. And I, I remember when I started to really, by God's grace, understand that just a little bit better and see that continuity of what Paul was expressing in the challenges, in the difference between the indicative and the imperative, which gets confused. It was really radical for me because yeah. everywhere in the scriptures, um, we're provided with the declaration of who we are in Christ. That's like this indicative. And then the command to respond to that particular dec declaration in a certain way. That's the imperative. So Paul doesn't call people to die to sin. He does not invite them to enter into a higher level of abundant life. They're not appeals to become something which the believer is not already. And right. that's so liberating to understand that. So the believer has died, is buried, is raised, is seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And they're not plateaus for victorious Christians who have surrendered all. But the reality is for every believer that regardless of how small one's faith or how weak one's repentance, the truth is we're already there in a sense. Yeah. And that is the fundamental difference. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where I think Reformed theology is exceptionally strong in comparison to probably our closest theological relatives, which would be Lutheranism, is that in Reformed theology— we acknowledge that there is a fully fully realized already and a yet to be realized not yet so it's true that we are justified sanctified adopted and in a certain sense we're already glorified amen right? all of all of the benefits that we have in Christ are already ours but in a on a very real also very real parallel sense all of those things, with the exception of justification um, and adoption, sanctification and glorification are not yet realities. So um, it's true that we're we're sanctified, we're holy. In one sense, I'm as holy as I'm ever going to be, and that's a that's a really good thing because it means my holiness is a genuine and real holiness. But it's also true that I'm growing in that holiness. And where I say this is different um, than our Lutheran brothers is that in Lutheranism. Glorify or sanctification, um, you know, I think it was Gerhard Ford that said this. I might be wrong, but it, it, a lot of Lutherans will describe and define sanctification as sort of getting used to your justification. So justification is the reality, and sanctification is just sort of like your life kind of like starting to reveal that more. It doesn't result, it doesn't, right. doesn't really, um, it doesn't really come about in any sort of like new sense. It's not like you're growing in sanctification. It's more like you're kind of growing in your own awareness of your sanctification. Yes. Where in Reformed theology, sanct progressive sanctification is a real thing. There is a um, there's a real sense. I'll have to pull up the the um, confession here because it's really good on this. But there's a real sense in which our sanctification is an increasing reality day by day, right? Sanctification is the work of God's grace, whereby he renews us in the whole man after the image of God, right? There's a, an entire uh, definitive state of renewal that is throughout the whole man. It's not just my spirit that's renewed. It's not just my body. It's not just my will. It's the whole man. But then it goes on to say that this sanctification although it is in the whole man, is not complete. So there's this increasing reality in this war that results where we have to wrestle and fight against our sin and that the, the process of sanctification, which is God's work, enables us to live 
unto righteousness more and more and die unto sin more and more so that there's this decrease in corruption and this increase in righteousness that's a result of this sanctification process that God is doing to us. And where this ties into our topic tonight is that this this sanctification process, although we speak of the, the Holy Spirit predominantly as the agent of sanctification, it's it's only in the context of union with Christ that that happens at all. Right. Yeah. Right. Sorry, I thought you had more there. I was getting no, excited. I was just getting I mean, pumped up. I mean, it's funny because, you know, you emailed me yesterday and said, let's do this episode on union with Christ. I was like, great, let's do it. And then we got this email that you forwarded to me last night that was like, this This email really is about union with Christ. Like the answer For sure. to this question is that revelation only occurs in, in, in Jesus Christ and thus in union with Jesus Christ, right? The illumination of the Holy Spirit that reveals to us um, by the testimony of the Word and Spirit reveals to us the will of, of God for salvation. Well, that's Christ acting as a prophet in his state of exaltation, right? That's yes. what Christ does in his state of exaltation is he reveals to us the will of God for our salvation. So, and then of course today, just in case I was super dense about it, um, the sermon this morning was on union with Christ. So all of these three things kind of like came together independently of each other. Uh, it's really clear that this was a topic that um, providentially God was leading us to. So I'm just really glad that this topic came up, but it cannot be underestimated and, and underemphasized how important this subject actually is. So if, if you're not familiar with this, when I first kind of came into the world of theology, um, I think the first really reform podcast I started listening to is reform forum, which is like a really hard intro to reform theology podcast. And they were talking about union with Christ. I had no idea what they were talking about. I had never heard that language before, but it's so important. So pick up a good systematic theology, um, Hor Michael Horton's pilgrim, Pro pilgrims, pilgrims progress. Pilgrim theology <laughs> uh, is really good. Um, Bavink volume three is super good on this. Um, it's really, really technical. Um, you know, there's just a lot of really good resources out there. There are, or even better, or in addition to that, especially this time of year in like the Christmas holiday season, it's a great time to grab a brother or sister and, and talk about this, right. bring up the subject and start to try to hash it out through conversation, try to understand, maybe try to explore it and understand it if you haven't before, or just rehearse it because this is a good truth to understand because yeah. at the end of the day, in the final analysis, what we've basically been saying is that there's this is a mark of identity shift and all of our righteousness and holiness and redemption and blessing is found outside of us in the person and work of Christ. Right. And I really love this quote from Calvin in his Institutes, section three. He writes, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. So I love that. I mean, Calvin is basically pointing out that this alien righteousness, belonging to someone outside of us would mean nothing if this righteousness, righteous one remained forever outside of us. So while none of our righteousness is our own, thankfully Christ is. And while none of our holiness belongs to us, properly speaking, Christ does. So all the prerogatives of the estate of grace are ours in virtue of our union with the Lord. And it behooves us to really understand what that union means. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. I mean, I don't, I don't think that I can say much more to add to that. So I think we should probably just wrap it up right there. Yeah. That's probably a good idea. Cause otherwise we're going to get talking about Nickelback again. Yeah. Let's never do that again. <laughs> you, you said it's so sad and distraught right there. Yeah. I'm really fighting it. That, I, that's, it's really hard for me not to launch into another conversation. So we should probably just bring this one home. So um, Wait, if, how great would it be if we could, can we get them on the podcast? Somebody must know them. I don't want to get them on the podcast. It's Nickelback. <laughs> it's Nickelback. Come on. Look at this autograph. What was that? Is that your Nickelback? That's my Nickelback voice. It's also very similar to my Creed, my Creed impression. Yeah, well, I mean, it's Can kind of in that same. Can you take me higher? Wow, that I was. Channeled to... a little bit of Matt Butts right there. We need to clearly get you back on the Fast God Stuff podcast, where we can really use that beautiful singing voice. Yeah. Let's not use that beautiful singing voice. Cross over. Yes. So if people, though, would like to comment on your very beautiful singing voice, how can they leave us a message? They can call us on our voicemail, 
bros. Bros. I was waiting for Jesse to do that, and he just kind of looked at me for a second there. Yes, yeah, sorry about that. I missed the like cue. Like I word. stunned him with the Nickelback impersonation. Yeah, I listen. I'm, it's still going to take me a little bit of while, a little while to metabolize that. But um, and I should say, so that it's coming to the end of the year. It's been a great year. I feel like we have crushed 2018. Yes, and um, we've got a lot of good things planned for the new year, including. Tons of question casts, tons of casts based on emails and questions. So all that to say, we, as we said before, we listen to everything. We read everything. We're so blessed by those who send in all kinds of uh, communication with us. So yeah. keep that stuff coming. It's, it may seem like it's uh, forgotten, but it's not. We're, we're working on stuff and it's going to be great. Yeah, we've got a lot of really exciting stuff. We're working on some deals. Uh, we're going to try to do some more book-based podcasts. We're trying to find some ways to help people get involved with that. Um, we're just really excited for the new year um, and some cool stuff that's going to be happening with the Society of Reform Podcasters as a whole too. So stay tuned and share it with your friends, right? We, we, want, we don't do this very often. We don't do this call to action very often, but we want um, the brotherhood to grow, not just because, um, I'm a nerd and I like to see graphs that go up instead of down. Um, but just because Jesse and I frequently remark at how, um, how humbled we are that God uses our silly little podcast to edify people and to teach people things. And we're constantly hearing feedback from people that the show is edifying. Um, so we want to keep making it as long as it keeps helping people. And um, we would love it if you would share share these episodes with your friends. A lot of the best questions that we get in emails that sort of turn into long, like full-length episodes, which are going to be doing uh, an episode coming up that's based on an email or as a response to an email we got um, – they happen when someone shares an episode with someone who's kind of outside of the traditional reformed podcasting world, right? So maybe they share our episode on Roman Catholicism with their Roman Catholic coworker, or they, you know, we had somebody who shared an episode with their friend on gratitude and, and their friend was like, I've never heard anything like this. So some of the best interactions we have and some of the most unexpected fruit that God bears through this podcast are when people share the episodes with people that they know. So we would would really be honored if you would take a little bit of time and just think about someone who might benefit from the podcast and share the link with them. And that's really the point of all this. I mean, at the risk of it now turning into like a PBS pledge we do this because it's iron sharpening iron. We yeah. want, we want other people to be involved in this conversation. And as we wrestle through things in our own lives and, and want to share those things and also really participate in hearing what God is doing in the lives of others. And really the challenges that they're bringing them through in their interactions in they're trying to grow deeper in theological understanding and in union with Christ yeah. that we're doing that and supporting one another. And so that's really all it's about. So you may predominantly hear our voices, but really at many times our voices are just the ones summarizing or giving voice to something that's come to us by way of so many people who are listening and participating together in the Reformed Brotherhood. So yeah. we are we are very, very thankful. And speaking of, can we just do, we probably should just do like a really quick podcast meeting right here, but just include everybody. <laughs> um, speaking of the new year, do we have anything to announce yet about like the whole book and episode thing um no. sure we uh we are going to be doing something similar to what you may have heard on reform forum they're doing voss group um or the glory cloud podcast is kind of um a long form um book explanation so we're going to read through uh joel beaky just put out this new book called reformed preaching um, which is published by crossway um, we're not going to do the sort of like page by page explanation style that you hear like on Voss Group or on Glory Cloud. But what we're going to do is we're going to just read the book and we're going to take an episode every month and we're going to talk about what we learned from the book. Um, so we would love uh, to get some voicemails or some emails from our listening community that are joining us in this um, to kind of like help flood, flesh out that conversation a little bit and flesh out that discussion. Because, you know, I'm I'm in seminary right now, so I'm, I'm taking courses which are involving preaching. So I'm going to see something very different um, than Jesse Will, who's in a different context versus somebody who is a pastor who's reading it. So we really want to get the whole community involved. We're trying to work out some deals to help um, help make it a little bit less expensive or to give you a little bit of a bang for your buck um, by getting you trying to get some sort of promotion going on with one of the major distributors. Um, so there's more information to come on that. The book is not that expensive if you wanted to um, purchase it and just get started. Um, but we'll probably do a chapter a month and we'll announce the schedule ahead of time and it'll be available on the website as well. 
And here's the beauty of this and why we bring it up now is if you're thinking about the turn of a new year and making at least some kind of resolution or maybe new commitment, maybe this might be the thing. So yeah. join us for reading. And the beauty about this is no stress. So you don't have to read the book to listen to the episode and follow along because there's going to be wonderful stuff. Even though the title of the book is Reformed Preaching, it's not just for pastors. Right. So it's a wonderful piece that you're going to find all kinds of helpful and information will be a blessing yeah. and a challenge to your Christian walk. Yeah. And better, if you want to read along, that'll be fantastic because you'll be part of a community that's doing it together. So if you haven't been, you know, I mean, Tony, you know how much I love book clubs. Like, oh, man, yeah. I just love book clubs. So I, this let this be your introduction. If you've never been part of a book club, this is the best chance to come along. And I don't know how we're going to do that exactly, but of course, you know, we'll work out the details, but you know now. So get yes. ready in 2019 it's coming for you. Get some. It is. So we'll put a link to the book uh, on the website. And once I get that promotion or coupon code or whatever worked out, we'll make sure that we distribute that information far and wide. Um, and we're really, really looking forward to it. I'm super excited about this kind of new thing that we're going to do. I love it. You got anything else, Tony? I do not. Other than to say, until next time, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Bye.